You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Book 2. The Pathway of Prayer. Chapter 1. Prayer, Privilege and Possibility. Luke 18, verses 1 to 14. One word of explanation before we begin. In speaking about prayer, I should not like you to think that I'm posing as an expert on this subject. There are some things you can become expert about by careful and diligent study, by much reading, by continual discussion and comparison. Prophecy would be such a subject. By diligent study, you become competent in the interpretation of prophecy. But prayer is not like this. There is no way to learn to pray, but by praying. We discover by use. We learn by practice. I once knew an elderly man in Christ. I use the past tense because he has fallen asleep. He was poor judged by human standards and untutored. He had to be taught to read before he could ponder the word of God. I think he knew more about prayer than any man I ever met. Poor and untutored, yes but he was a mighty man in the ministry of prayer. So I have not written about prayer as an expert. I challenge no man's opinion. I question no man's method. I simply put it to you as it appears to me. So if perchance I should fall into dogmatic language, it is not because I think this is the last word about prayer. All I say is, that which has helped me, I hope may help you. There are problems about prayer, and we hope, that by sharing thoughts we may, together, find some consolation. We begin dogmatically with a good, sound, biblical principle. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, verse 7. It tells us that what a man thinks regulates what he does. A man's belief conditions his actions. My consciousness of anything controls my conduct towards it. My consciousness of a child conditions my conduct toward that child. My consciousness of a young woman conditions my conduct towards that young woman. If my consciousness is low, my conduct will be low. And if my consciousness is high, resultant, my conduct will be higher. In the city of Corinth in New Testament times, there were skeptics. They did not believe in any other life than this life. They did not believe in any other world than this world. And so they lived lives purely on the plane of the material, sensual and transient. They had a proverb, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Their way of life arose directly out of their philosophy. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you believe inevitably determines what you do. This is true about prayer. What you think about prayer will decide whether you pray and how you pray and what happens as a result of your praying. So our business is first of all to consider what is the right teaching about prayer, its privilege and its possibility. This is the pathway we must tread if we are to come to a condition of prevailing prayer before God. I do not know whether we want a definition of prayer, but when I was young they taught me that prayer was the raising of the heart and mind to God and I have never felt the need to quarrel with that definition. In short, prayer is communication with God, a cry, 
uttered or unexpressed, which reaches heaven and the majesty on high. No man hath seen God at any time. In Romans 1 verse 20, the Apostle Paul says that men have evidence of the existence of God in the things which are created. There is evidence of power and intelligence in the things of nature. The divinity of God is marked on every tree and on every blade of grass. Nature proclaims the existence of eternal energy and transcendent wisdom. But I do not think you will be constrained to pray to eternal, limitless energy, even when you see it marshalling stars and controlling seasons and presiding over the secret forces of the universe. I do not think you will pray to such a force in the way we think of praying. It is difficult to believe that a word of yours or mine could reach or affect such a stupendous intelligence. Standing by itself, it becomes unthinkable. We may feel broken and bruised and need to pray, but somehow we cannot pray to the inscrutable force which is in nature. We know that Romans 1.20 is utterly true and the created things demand our wonder and our reverence, but it is not the whole story. The whole story is that out of this stupendous intelligence has come a revelation which has changed the whole situation with a new dimension. This is it, and it is summarized for us in a verse in John's Gospel. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Chapter 1, verse 18. It means that out of the infinite spaces of eternity, and from the mysterious and inscrutable intelligence of the invisible force, has come a great love song. Behind the power and the precision of the great God of the universe, there is abundant and abounding grace. Notice that phrase, the bosom of the Father. It means the Father heart of God. And out of that Father heart of God, the Son has spoken to men. We know now, as with hushed spirits we ponder this Lord of Revelation, that the one who was spoken out of the bosom of the Father is the one with wounded hands, and the mystery of pain upon his life, and the death of sacrifice in wrapping him like a garment, so that we may be able to come near the great God of the universe, and find pardon, and peace, and protection. So we may enter the presence of the great God, and the place of prayer. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth, has compassion on them that fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. We know that somehow in the fiber of our being we are undone. We are under the pollution and penalty of sin, lost and straying, broken and bereft. And then we discover that underneath the eyes of fire there is a voice of love. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. It tells us that the shepherd work of God will never cease until the straying ones are brought home. There is pardon for sin and cleansing for pollution. There is power in place of paralysis. So, standing in the Son's revelation of the fatherhood of God, a man in his weakness and his utter need is constrained to draw near in reverent and filial fear to pray. It means we may come with all our bruises and our wounds and our impoverishment to find grace to help in time of need. This is what I mean by privilege. The revelation creates the desire to pray. If you believe, and if you feel this to be true, it must affect your praying. 
As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. To pray or to faint. But there is more to be said about the privilege of prayer. I bring you to Luke 18, verse 1. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. On a point of exegesis, in the revised version, instead of the word men ought always to pray, there is they ought always to pray. The change is important for this reason. It reveals more clearly to whom the king was speaking. If you go back a few verses in Luke, you will read this. And he said unto his disciples, chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus then goes on to speak of the stress, strain, and conflict of the life of discipleship. You will see then that the word men tends to detach his words from the immediate context, whereas the word they includes it even more closely. They, the disciples, faced with the allied forces of opposition on godliness, ought always to pray and not to faint. Notice what the king is doing. He is putting these two things in opposition. He declares that this is the alternative before a disciple, to pray or to faint. There are two groups only. There is no hint of a middle course. According to our understanding of the king's teaching, if men pray rightly, they will not faint. And if they do faint, it will be because they have ceased to pray. So you can find your interpretation of prayer in the process of negation. Put simply, prayer is the opposite of fainting. Fainting is a sudden sense of weakness, helplessness, it is weariness. It is to feel the force of life ebbing away. So by contrast, you can define the effect of praying. It is to mount up with wings as eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Though the way be rough and rugged, perhaps walking amidst precipices, it is safety and assurance. This, then, is the king's great philosophy of life. There is no hour so dark, no temptation so subtle, no conflict so fierce, but that if I shall pray, then I shall overcome. Now here is something to notice, that although praying is a privilege, right in the heart of the privilege, there is necessity. They ought to pray and not to faint. It is a privilege indeed, and yet it is a duty. They ought. It must mean that in God there is a resource equal to every demand that can come upon those who trust him. Men ought not to faint, because men ought to pray. This, then, is the privilege of prayer. The inward impelling force is the realization of our own need and the revelation of God's abundant solution for love's sake. The Father heart of God is making provision for every need of his children. And then the necessity. If a man is suffering from a deadly disease and there is a certain remedy, but he refuses the remedy and dies, you could say he died of the disease but it would be only half the truth. The real answer is that he died because he refused the remedy. That is our situation. Standing by ourselves, we are bound to faint, to feel the vigor of life passing, beaten, broken down, disintegrating, descending, and at last doomed. There is no middle course. They ought always to pray and not to faint. This is our privilege and our necessity. If we understand it rightly and feel it to be true, it will control whether and how we pray. If ye abide in me. Think next of possibility, that is to say, the purpose and the achievement of prayer. I will come to the point straight away 
and say that there are those who affirm sincerely that the sole purpose of prayer is subjective, that is, its object is to change those who pray, to produce upon the character of those who pray something noble and uplifting, but nothing else. Now, whilst I have the deepest respect for those who sincerely hold this view of prayer, I am obliged to say that I think it to be utterly wrong, and in a sense a theory which is self-destructive. When we were thinking about privilege, we brought to mind a simple but profound statement in John's Gospel. Let us do the same now while we are thinking about possibility. Here is a simple but profound statement of the king himself. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom, if his son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he will ask a fish, will give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Matthew 7, verses 7-11 to Now, if when I ask, I never have, when I seek, I cannot find, when I knock, no door is ever open to me, then I am obliged to say with deep reverence that somehow I have been deceived. The words of the king are most explicit here. There is another quotation which is equally remarkable. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it will be done unto you, caused to be. John 15, verse 7. In that passage, there is the condition, and then the achievement. The condition is this, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you. That demands a situation where the desires of the praying one harmonize with the purposes of God, and that harmony is brought about by living a practical life that is honed in God, and a spiritual life where the king may dwell and be at home, where he may move by authority of love, and where there is nothing to make his presence impossible. Then, given such a condition, prayer becomes a method of cooperation with the great God of heaven. This, therefore, is the situation where God will answer the cry and the petition of the one who prays, understanding that he will not grant anything which hurts or harms those on whom his love is set. If, in fact, prayer has no objective value, then these words only deceive me into thinking it has. This alternative, that these are words of one who was sincere but deceived, is an alternative I cannot accept, nor can you. We do not believe he was deceived or a deceiver. The Bible says that heaven and earth may pass away, but his word cannot. It appears to me that if you deny the possibility of objective prayer, you have denied the word of the king. But think about it along the line of reason. I am the first to recognize the subjective value of prayer. I know well enough that praying does affect the inward condition of those who pray. It does change us when we practice prayer. Of course it does. Those who speak with God cannot escape bearing the mark of it, like Moses in the Mount. But here is the argument, that the subjective value and the effect of prayer arises out of a conviction that when men speak to God, he hears and answers their prayer. If a man prays for something, it is because he has faith in the God to whom he prays. It seems to me that the subjective value of prayer arises out of its objective value, 
and if you can demonstrate its subjective value, it follows, therefore, that you have presumptive evidence that prayer has an objective purpose. Again, most people who pray objectively, that is, believing that God grants their petitions, and that external things are changed by prayer, I say people who pray like that are affected in themselves. They are changed. Often they are uplifted and ennobled. Now, if there is no such possibility that God answers in that way, then it means that belief in that which is untrue is able to produce a character which is true and noble. Such a proposition is untenable. And then there is another fact which cannot be denied. It often happens that people who believe only in the subjective value of prayer and deny its objective value at last give up praying altogether. I know of three examples of this myself. It seems that no man continues to ask if at last he is convinced that the only effect is an effect upon himself. That is what I meant when I said that the theory was at last self-destructive. Then go back to Luke 18 and think of the unjust judge in the parable. The parable is an exposition of the meaning of prayer by the use of contrast. Contrast all the way through. All that the unjust judge was, God is not. The judge was unjust, careless, and indifferent, concerned only with his own peace and security. By contrast, God is revealed as being susceptible, righteous, and just, and mark the word of Jesus, long-suffering over them. He will avenge. And the word does not mean take revenge, but do justice to. And the king adds the words, speedily. It reveals that God is one who answers the heart uplifted in prayer and Godward, not reluctantly, but he is ready to hear and answer the weakest, feeblest, faintest cry. So we form our understanding of the possibility of prayer, first by our doctrine of the nature of God, as we thought about it under privilege, then by the gracious words of the king himself, tenderly spoken and substantiated by his own life, death, and resurrection. Then, finally, we are reassured by the history and experience of men and women of God who have asked and received, sought and found, and have knocked and had the door opened. Today, science makes experience the universal test of truth and reality. And if that be true, we are more than right to include in our testimony the experience of the people of God who prayed and were answered. The History and Experience of God's Servants Think of some of the examples in the Bible. Think first of all of Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, 1 Samuel 1. Hannah was a woman with a broken heart. She was the first wife, but her husband took a second. It was legal, but not wise. There are some female temperaments that might be able to agree in such circumstances, but in this case, it was not so. Peninnah, the second wife, was a woman with a bitter tongue, and poor Hannah was a woman who was barren, and the target or Peninnah's jealousy. So, in the words of the narrative, she provoked her sore for to make her fret. She knew what she needed. She needed a man-child. It was no good explaining to Hannah that the laws of nature cannot be changed, or that the laws of chance cannot be manipulated. Somehow she had the idea that the power which shut the womb can open it. The power which makes barren can make fruitful. She, in bitterness of soul, prayed to the Lord and wept sore. When she went back from Shiloh, her countenance was sad no more. She had cast her burden on the Lord. It was not in vain, and Hannah never ceased to give thanks in the person of Samuel, her child, serving God. 
Think of King Asa, 2 Chronicles 14, verses 8 to 15. You'll recall his story. Suddenly he found himself in great trouble. He was a good king, and everything was going well, when out of the blue the Ethiopians came against him with a great army. Humanly speaking, defeat was certain. Asa was helpless, but not hopeless. He knew that the poverty of our resources is no problem to God. Asa sought a link with God. His prayer is one of the most daring in the whole of the Bible. He said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name do we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. Verse 11. What he meant was, we are inadequate, but we have come. We are weak, but we are at your disposal. Our failure will be your failure. It was a bold plea, but it was answered with a great victory over Zerah and the Ethiopian hosts. The battle was not Asa's, but God's, and so was the triumph. But it needed Asa's faith. Think of Joshua. He was a great soldier and a great servant of God. Under his command, Israel had victories at Rephidim and Jericho. When they came to Ai, it seemed like child's play by comparison. The intelligent corps said it was not a serious business at all. Only a few men would be needed. There was no need to trouble the Almighty. You know the story. They went out as though they were going to a Sunday school outing, and they came back helter-skelter, licking their wounds. Joshua was dumbfounded, but he took this defeat to God. You will want to remind me that Achan's sin was at the bottom of the trouble, but perhaps the root of the failure was the lack of prayer. If Joshua had taken the matter to God first, he would have discovered the hidden danger before the battle instead of after it. They discovered their need too late. There is something about success that makes men self-confident, and self-confidence is fatal to discovering your need. I will bring you to the New Testament in Acts 9. The Lord is speaking to Ananias. Arise, and go to the street that is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Verse 11. Although I have no doubt that Saul had prayed all his life, it is as though God meant, Mark this wonder, Saul of Tarsus is praying. He is being converted. He has discovered his need. God told Ananias that this sign of praying was proof that the arch-persecutor had become a true disciple. Doubtless he had prayed before as a proud Pharisee, but now for the first time as a broken, repentant sinner. Behold, he prayeth. With God, this was conclusive. Now, I confess that from these examples, it is possible to draw a wrong conclusion. It might be concluded that the only time we ought to pray is when we are in dead trouble. Such a view would be dislocated and unbalanced. The right conclusion is to see that men begin to pray rightly when they have discovered their dependence on God. A man is usually more honest with himself in the day of need than in the day of satisfaction. A real sense of need has a way of laying bare the hidden workings of the soul. Defenses are broken down, the masks are off, and the artifices with which we cloak our motives are torn away. We don't have to be in dead trouble before we can discover our dependence on God. Elijah needed God desperately on Mount Carmel, but he knew his dependence on God before that. Men like Elijah may appear suddenly, but they are not made in a day. 
The open victory is the fruit of secret prayers and born out of the knowledge of deep need. Think of Daniel. Three times a day he prayed to God at the open window. Daniel 6 verse 10. He did this when all was well with him, perhaps because he knew that the crisis would come, which, when it came, would discover the hidden flaws and lay bare the source of his strength. The crisis sometimes tries all things. In one day a man may reap the harvest of a lifetime. The faith of Daniel was not a flash in the pan. His reliance on God was not born suddenly. Usually people who pray effectively in a storm have discovered the need in fine weather. Desperation is better than despair, but the best course is to have commerce with heaven before the storm envelops us. It is good to pray when we are in darkness, but it is better to walk in the light. Very often, open victory is the fruit of secret prayer over a long time. Daniel's secret was the ministry of an open window. When the crisis came, Daniel had nothing to alter. There was no panic. He continued to do, then, what he had always done. He went to the open window and gave thanks, it says, as aforetime. Verse 10. He did not suddenly need to change his life. Of course, that would not be true of everybody. I can think of a man, I won't tell you his name, but I reckon if the crisis like that had come to him, he would have shut the window, drawn the blinds, bolted the door, and made his will. Daniel was ready for the day of crisis because he was ready every day. He stole an advance march against the enemy by discovering his need early when he faced the king's wine. Daniel 1. He knew what to do when he faced the king's wine, so God delivered him when he had to face the king's lions. That was the experience of Daniel, a praying man at an open window. The need for conviction. Now I mention all these examples because I wanted to say this to you in conclusion. There are some people who will tell us that these persons, and many others like them, were all no doubt sincere, but somehow they were mistaken. Now if that be true, that the testimony of saints and seers, of prophets and priests, of psalmists and martyrs, If all this is to count for nothing, then we ought to say, may God help us to share their delusion, if they were deluded, because their delusion has been the cause of some of the noblest characters and the most effective, dynamic, and some of the best work that has ever been done on the face of the earth in the name of God. But you do not believe that, and nor do I. These people were not mistaken. Let nobody rob you of your conviction that the great things which they did were done because of the power of prevailing prayer. And let us remember again that the conviction that this is true is based firmly on the doctrine, first of all, of the nature and fatherhood of God. Let us go back over our reasons in this matter of privilege and possibility. Our conviction about prayer is based, first of all, on our realization of the nature of the fatherhood of God, then on the declaration of Jesus Christ, the King himself, then on the history of the experience of the saints. As you think in your heart about prayer, so will you pray. And as you are conscious of its privilege and possibility, you will be able to come next to its preparation and practice. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, Most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look.
If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.